Today we are graced with the presence of Mr. David Fahe, who will be giving us an insight into a very interesting topic called the new era of education, nature versus technology. So thank you so much, Mr. David, for being here with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. All right. So before delving right into the topic, I think it's only fair if the audience uh, knew a little more about Mr. David. So allow me to introduce uh, Mr. David. So Mr. David is a high school teacher currently at GEMS International School in Penang, where he specializes in uh, teaching both geography as well as psychology. He also holds a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Science, uh, PGCE in Secondary Geography, and is a qualified teacher as well as a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. Uh, due to Mr. David's passion in education, he actually quit his PhD and his job as a part-time uh, university lecturer to become a secondary education teacher. Uh, adding to that, he also holds a Bachelor of Science in Psychology and a Master of Science in Investigative uh, Psychology and uh, to top it all off, an MBA as well. Uh, as of now, he remains a certified business psychologist uh, accredited by, by the uh, Association of Business Psychology in the UK. And his interest, uh, broadly speaking, is using technology to modernize geography education, nature-based learning, as well as, uh, I think this was very nicely put, dragging schools into the 21st century. So once again, thanks, Mr. David, for being here. And I guess we can dive right into the topic. So I guess uh, the first question uh, would be, what actually defines nature-based learning in terms of education? Yeah, it's a good question and the most basic question um, to start with, right? We need to define nature-based learning and, and I guess that might mean different things to different people. For me, it's about exposure in an educational setting to the natural world. Now, this might be done outside in a river or a rainforest, um, but not necessarily. It's, it's also possible to bring the outside in. So... For example, um, I might be talking about some frog spawn in a, in a fish tank from outside where students can learn and interact um, with, um, you know, with, with, that, with that piece of science and, um, and, and do things with that and learn about nature um, in the classroom as well. So it doesn't necessarily have to be outside. That would be my preference. But I think that exposure to the natural world in a learning context is, um, defines it for me. All right. Thanks, Mr. David. I think I, I guess uh, I agree with you as well. Uh, when we, we're looking at today's times where everything is online and, and, you know, we're all staring at screens 24 hours a day, I guess, um, you know, with that exposure to nature, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's outside or inside. I think it, there's a new element of learning which we can, you know, use on. So I guess my next question would be, um, as we know, technology has evolved. And uh, since the onset of the pandemic, we've utilized technology uh, as evidenced by the podcast we're having right now. I'm guessing you're in Penang and I'm 400 kilometers away in the city center. And, you know, and yet we're still able to have this podcast. So yep. how do you think technology has shaped our education today? I think um, technology has always been shaping education. I think it's, it's, it's not new. We are in this digital era now, perhaps, but 
you know, a techno technology doesn't have to be digital. Um, I was talking to some engineer friends of mine um, just last week, and um, you know, we talked about um, uh, a spade, you know, um, being a technology. You know, something made out of wood is still a technology, and it's been influencing education, I think, since since the long 18th century, which is a period that we refer to as as the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason, and this is where in a Western context, um, the, um, there was a move away from believing in, in fate, that, that everything was written and, and it was basically, um, it was really rooted in biblical studies, in, in, in Bible studies. And so, and so with, with, with the, the emergence of these enlightened philosophers like John Locke, um, Sir Isaac Newton, um, we we you know we we started to realize that actually you know we have more agency in our in our you know, control over our destiny, and so this this led to um, to this to this to this thinking which was no longer rooted in religious dogma, and um, and and ultimately led to to the industrial revolution which began in the UK, but also at the same time, I'm not, I'm not particularly well versed in this, but, um, but in the, you know, in the East, um, China was certainly recognized as being a, a very advanced society as well. So I think education has, has always um, been influenced by technology. What's happening now is not new. It's always been there. All right, thanks for that, Mr. David. Uh, so when when we look when we when we're looking at uh, the evolution of technology, uh, especially when you look at the consumer market of like uh, smartphones and computers, we see a dramatic increase in how they've evolved. You know, I remember when I was I think about eight or nine when the the iPhone 3GS was first introduced, and that was like the first touchscreen phone, and we were all going nuts about it. And then now almost everyone is using uh, you know a touchscreen phone, and it's like nothing new. So. We, we look at technology from that aspect and, you know, we, we see a dramatic increase in how it's evolved. Uh, yet when we look at the classroom, in a classroom setting, it's always a teacher and a group of students and that has not evolved. So it could be saying that it's, this method is so good that it does not need evolving, but, you know, maybe there could be something else that is going on. So, is the traditional method of education still suited today or you know would you prefer uh, uh, an education method in which you have incorporation of both nature-based learning as well as technology sure so i i'm definitely in um no i don't think that education got it right 200 years ago and therefore has no need to change i think that um what you have just identified there is a real problem and um, and I don't think this is, this is necessarily um, a technological question. It is just more of a, of a it's, it's, a, more, it's a more holistic um, um, question to ask. And it was Tom Hirk, who's, um, who's a, an educational consultant, and his quotation was, um, 21st century children being taught by 20th century adults using techniques in a curriculum from the 19th century within a calendar from the 18th century. And that is what's happening in schools right now. That is what's happening. And, um, and so 
and but this is not just in schools what what you know, my my background is that i came from industry and i moved into a university and i saw what was going on there and so and then i moved further back into into the school system because i think that schools are not preparing young people for university or alternatives to university and universities are not preparing young people for um for work for what employers need so i think there is a a huge disconnect between the different phases of education and and ultimately ultimately employment and i think from a technological perspective one of the one of the issues with this we have a lot of technology it's ubiquitous i mean you mentioned the iphone um, I can still remember getting my first email in 1998. And, um, and so, you know, this, this, this has actually moved on much faster than even you might be aware of. You know, it's, it's only um, 20, 20, 22, 20, 23, 24 years. And all of this has kind of really moved on um, an enormous amount. But what I see is I see a lot of kids interacting with technology but they're users, they're not innovators, they're not creators, they're merely consuming what other people have done. Um, it's kind of worrying because there are, my, my, my father was a, a detective in a narcotic squad and um, there are only two industries which describe their customers as users. One is the, the drug dealing industry and one is um, the software industry. And, um, and I think that um, one of the things that education needs to do or play a role in certainly um, is to is to convert those young people from being mere consumers, mere users of this technology, into doing something useful with it. All right, thank you, Mr. David. I think yeah, that was quite insightful, and I agree to a certain extent where you know the drug business and and the uh, you can equate it one to the other in terms of you know being for users. I, I can't think of any other two industries that actually refer to their customers as users. And yeah. but, but if you think about it as well, social media, I mean, you guys are, are medical students, right? So um, if you think about um, social media, for example, this has not been designed by psychologists with people's um, uh, mental health being at the core. This has been designed by engineers to addict people. And so we have a situation now where people are addicted to likes. Um, it, it, it affects the number of likes that children get, or, or not just children, people in general can affect their mood, can affect their, their level of happiness. And, um, and so, you know, I think that actually the parallel is, is, is perhaps uncomfortably deeper than, than, than just the, just the surface um, aspect. And this is, and this is just an element of, of, um, there is an element of addiction there, um, with, with how young people interact with certain types of, of, of digital, digital media. Yeah, that is true. And I, I guess it would be a good uh, discussion for another day. But building on your topic on how uh, you mentioned where schools aren't preparing students for university and, and, and then it goes on and on. So I think we would just like to know what your ideology is of education, what it should be, and maybe what factors actually influence you to have this sort of ideology. Okay. I think that um, I'm using my Malaysia experience right now. I think that, um, and I think that this is this is largely cultural. It's more than just schools. It's bigger than just schools. It's 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 societal. It's 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 structural. Um, it's cultural. 
Um, but right now, um, children are being trained to pass exams. Okay. That's what, that's the skill that they are developing to pass an exam. Now, when you get out into real life after you finish school, that's a pretty useless skill to have, like, you know, passing an exam. I mean, not many mums and dads would, would say that they've, you know, spent the last week passing exams. And so, so I think that the, the whole, um, and I was also speaking to, my, to, to, to a colleague of mine who teaches design and technology. So he's actually working with real things. Um, and it sits in the art department, but actually there's a lot of science and engineering that goes into what he does as well. Um, and and he, he noted that, um, that he gave, he gave a, a, an A-level student a set of components um, and asked him, to put, asked him to put them together, put, put these components. And it was just some, some basic principles of physics to make it work. That student could not put those things together. He had no practical skills. Now, where, where does this... Um, but, but I can sort of take this back to much earlier on in my life. I did an environmental science degree. Um, my degree was... I was fortunate. My degree was very practical in its nature. I also did... It was a four-year degree, and my third year was spent in industry. So I was trained by an organization to use scientific um, equipment, various um, spectrometers, um, flame ionization detectors, all kinds of, of, of instrumentation um, to be able to measure atmospheric pollution. And, um, and so I learned the theory at university and I, and I got some practical use, but I really got hands-on experience outside. And then I took that back to university in my fourth year. And after that, I went to work for the same company because they'd invested in me for a year and I had the skills that they needed to be, to be work ready. Um, when I taught at university, um, before I moved into high school teaching, I, I saw a real disconnect between, um, you know, I, I felt like I was teaching high school geography, um, year nine geography to, to, to students who were, who were 19, 20, 21 years old. And, um, and I just thought to myself, how far can I take this back? How far does, does the problem go? And so my, um, so I guess, so, so I guess it's, it's, it's the sum of my experiences which has led me to where I am. In terms of, in terms of the nature part um, and the technology part, um, I think that, that we're spending too much time on screens. I think that we are, in evolutionary terms, we've not been removed from nature for very long. All of this has happened very, very quickly. And I don't think that we are designed to be so detached from nature. And I think this is causing lots of um, social problems, um, mental health problems, um, etc. So, So my kind of all approach to, to education is to is to, is, to, is to bring these together um, to try and how do I, how do we gel? Because technology is not going anywhere. It's here to stay and it's useful. But how do we gel that with, with what we know to be healthy and good for us, but also make it useful um, later on in life when we've completed our education? So that's kind of where I'm coming from. All right. Thank you so much, Mr. David. I think that's, that's a rather refreshing to hear. 
And I guess it brings me to my next question. So you mentioned that in your third year of your degree, uh, you got the nature aspect of it because of the hands-on experience. Whereas, you know, in the previous years of your degree, it was more technology-based because of the theory that, that, you know, you've learned and acquired. So you're able to use that. And I guess when you combine the nature aspect and the technology aspect and go hand in hand, I guess that's why, you know, in your, like you mentioned in your fourth year, you managed to bring the hands-on experience to further aid your learning. So I guess the, the next question would be, how do we intertwine perfectly uh, both nature and technology? Where is the fine line or the balance and how do we actually do it? I think that working in nature has always necessitated, necessitated the use of technology. For example, as a geographer, I might be interested in, in why a river floods. Why does the, the Klang Valley flood every year? And so in order, to, in order to, to answer this question, which is a complex question, um, I, I will need to go and do some science. I will need to go and take some measurements. I will need to get into that river. I will need to understand um, how, um, what the rivers, I will need to do some, some work on, on the river's cross-sectional area, what's its cross-sectional area. I will also need to understand how quickly that water flows. I'm using technology to measure this all the time. I might, I, you know, I might um, also want to take some, some, some basic chemistry from there. I might want to understand the biological oxygen demand or the chemical oxygen demand um, of, of, the, of the water. I might want to, to know what the pH is, for example. I'm using technology all the time in order to be able to, to, to do this. I think within geography, um, but geography itself has always, always been um, a technology-driven subject. Not in schools, and that's the problem, because it's not in schools. Um, but if you look at the weather forecasting industry, which is a multi-billion dollar industry around the world, crucial for aviation, crucial for shipping, crucial for agriculture, um, it's geographers that lead this together with engineers because they create the, the, the data, you know, the, the, the measurements and the data processing that needs to take place on supercomputers to, to, to manage huge amounts of data 24 hours a day. Um, so, so I think it's, it's always been a case of, of nature and technology. You know, the two have never been, where, where, where I think the disconnect is, is, is there isn't a huge schools are failing education is failing because it's not exposing children to um concepts like for me geographical information systems have been around for quite a long time now you know they they are the basis of sat navs um when i was at university they were relatively new um this in schools though you still find people doing their geographical so this is layering maps on top of each other so i might have a geological map and a and a, and a relief map and, and, and some, some um, economic data on top of that, for example. But, um, but the, the, what we're still seeing in schools is tracing paper. So to create an additional layer of map, we're seeing tracing paper. There's no interaction with, with the software. Even though the software is, even though access to the software through organizations like ArcGIS or open source such as QGIS, it's free. It's free for schools to use. Teachers are not taking it up. Teachers are not leading their students down that avenue. 
All right, thanks, Mr. David. So I guess it all depends on on actually using the readily available technology in order to benefit the students. I think so. Students students have to be exposed to it. They have to know where it is. And um, and and it's it's amazing. You know, I did. You know, when they do know where it is, when they do know how to use it, the young, you know, the 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 generation of school children now, they're they're, they're far more intuitive with technology than I am. You know, because they've mm-hmm. been born into it, they can pick it. Well, what might have taken me, um, I don't know, a week to learn um, before I taught that lesson, they, they've picked it up in twenty minutes. You know, and um, and so, but if they don't get the exposure to that, and they're not, and they they don't get the understanding of how that bit of technology connects to their basic geography knowledge, why does that? what does that tell us about how can we interpret that through our knowledge of geographical process and path then then it's 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 always going to be a bit of a problem um and i think teachers have to get out of their comfort zones there teachers and teachers are very much not um not doing this why aren't they doing it because the exams don't demand it and students just want to pass their exams so they can get a grade a even if they leave um, with no particular skills, as long as they have a grade A. So this is problematic for me because as a business psychologist, I was designing psychometric instruments and assessment centers to try and look at, at individuals more holistically, not just their exam grades. So it all ties in with what I used to do there as well. All right, that's very insightful, Mr. David. Uh, I'd just like to bring the, the, the discussion now to a bit on online learning and online classes. So, you know, especially with the, the pandemic now, I think the majority of the institutions have moved on to online learning. And I guess, uh, you know, it puts all the students in a very technologically based cage where they're not exposed to nature. Uh, so I just wanted to know your thoughts on, on uh, online learning and even with the after the pandemic dying down, uh, as you know, Malaysia is, is technically moving towards an endemic stage right now. Yep. So what are your thoughts on online learning? Should it be continued after this? If so, how do we make it better? I think it's a difficult question to answer because it depends. The answer is it depends. And I think it depends on the demographic of, of who's learning. Um, I think it's really dangerous to continue this with, with young people. Um, I think it impacts them negatively in terms of um, social skills, their ability to interact with, with other people. Um, I think it isolates them in their bedrooms, for example, or in one space. Um, I think it makes it very, very hard for us as, as education professionals um, and specialist practitioners to, to assess progress, um, you know, the, the students making. Um, they're hiding behind um, chat boxes rather than speaking verbally, rather than, rather than using their microphones. It's very easy for students to just say, oh, my mic's broken. Just because, you know, they, 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 because it, 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 it's easier to say that than I don't have the confidence to speak, to speak up. And, um, and, um, and it's also, you know, they're, organ- they're just their basic organizational skills. You know, they're, they're you know, so, so in a, if you contrast that with a classroom environment, I might start a lesson by putting up a, a photograph of an earthquake and asking students at their tables to discuss and, and write down as many questions as they can about that photograph. So 
Um, so that that is kind of really, I think, um, it's a danger with younger people. I think we need to get them back into into um, not necessarily not traditional classrooms because I'm I'm sat here um, arguing against traditional classrooms, right? But 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 they there are huge benefits um, to children from working together, from collaborating together, and. And there is only so much you can do from behind the computer screen. You know, there's only so much that um, that teachers can do. There's only so much that they can do. You know, when you're behind a computer screen, you are not in a river. You are not in a forest. You are not up a mountain. You you get no sense really of what it's like from actually being there looking at it on the screen. So I think that. But if you say Blended learning, is it good for a university student who has more life experience, who has established friendships, um, who, you know, who might have, or, or a, um, somebody who works and they might want to do um, a degree by distance learning, then, you know, programs such as this now, the, the medium that we're talking to now, has opened up a, a huge number of new um, possibilities for this to be more interactive for them. So instead of studying in isolation as a distance student, um, they are able to interact with their with their peers and their and their lecturers um, far more in, in a far more meaningful way than they could before. So again, um, just to sort of come full circle, the answer to that question is onlining a good thing. Should it be here to stay? Yes, it is here to stay. Is it a good thing? It depends how it's used. But I think the demographic, the age of the student, is very important. All right, thank you, Mr. David. I think I would agree with you on that one. Uh, considering, I think most of us here are medical students who spend, I think, about one and a half years of online learning. Yeah. So, you know, we, we are missing out on the, the human touch, the exposure to patients. And then when you look at uh, anatomical studies where you can't really actually look at the structures, you know, so we're missing out on that aspect. So, yeah, I guess, you know, when, when you actually go back, like you mentioned, when you see that the picture of the earthquake and all these questions start coming, so I guess yeah, the same applies to us as well. And it's, it's not a multi-sensory experience, is it, either? You're looking at a picture which is in two dimensions, generally, but you, you can't smell it, you can't hear it, you know, you can't, you know, you can't touch it. Yeah, yeah, that is true, yeah. So, uh, Mr. David, I'd just like to know, as, uh, you know, since you have experience as an uh, investive psychologist, so, and since the topic today is on education, so I just wanted to know how heavily uh, education plays a role in terms of molding a person and uh, how do you see nature-based learning uh, as a tool to shape a person's future? There's plenty of research to say that to, which demonstrates that students participating in science outdoors or so biology class outdoors do better in their exams because they are getting a much more um, holistic experience and understanding of what it is that, that they're doing. So the notion that they just, you know, you just have to stay indoors, um, you know, in a classroom and to do exam papers to, to, to get your grades, I don't think it really is supported um, in, in research. I think that, um, just repeat your question again, please, if you would, Joel. I'm, I'm thinking. All right. All right. Yeah, I just wanted to know, uh, how heavily education 
uh, plays a role in terms of molding a person. So this yeah. is from an investigative psychologist's point of view. And uh, how does nature-based learning uh, help with that? So from a yeah, so from a psychologist's point of view, it's it's you know there's there's plenty of most most of the most of the theory that that that, teachers, um, that, that, that make up teacher training courses is actually developed not by teachers but by by educational psychologists or psychological researchers such as Piaget, um, Bandura, um, and it's really important for for developing language, language and cognition are very closely related. You know, I'm firmly of the belief that language is not just a reflection of our thoughts. Language, language creates our thoughts. It's, it constructs and it's constructive. So you and I talking together are creating a reality between us and we're negotiating an understanding between us. You're not just getting a, a, a reflection of my thoughts. You know, we're building concepts together through conversation. And, and that is a really important aspect of a, of a child's education. The, you know, it develops that ability to think critically. And, um, and I think that is where, um, that is, that is the, that's kind of the big hurdle that the current uses of technology have to, um, you know, we, we, that we have to get over. How do we, how do we use technology in the classroom in such a way that it is interactive and it supports critical thinking rather than, rather than stunts it? Um, I think it's easy, you know, the easy way around that is to, you know, um, how does it work in nature-based learning? Well, we know that being outside is good for us. We know that interacting with, with insects and, 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 and plants is, is a healthy thing to do. Um, but you could take the principles of coding, for example, to create an app, say, which, which um, helps, which children can go outside with, they can develop the app and they can identify what a particular butterfly is or what a particular beetle is or what a particular plant is by taking a picture of a leaf you know, which is then fed back into a database, which then brings that, oh, this is what this is. And you might have other data there, you know, um, it's, it's, you know, that, that plant's um, ability to fix nitrogen, for example, you know, so um, you could have, you know, other data there, you could look at which plants coexist with one another, which, and, and, and also, when you, when you start to look at the ecology, insects and plants have developed very much together so certain insects are essential um, for particular plants and without that particular insect that particular plant can't propagate so so it's you know you can you can bring all of these things into that you could from a geography perspective um be using um arcgis for example um linked with survey one two three where students can be putting information into an app which then drops that into a map. And then by looking at that map, they can start to see patterns. They can start to, to see how, you know, visually, spatially, what does that data look like? You know, where are the surpluses? Where are the deficits, for example? It might be access to water, for example, access to, to, to drinking water, something as simple as that. But students are then outside in nature 
Um, and they're using technology. Now, it doesn't have to stop there. We can start, the students can decide themselves what question are they going to investigate? You know, what, what, what's a, what, what is a good question to investigate? You know, and a good question is a, is a, is a question that has a complex answer. So they can then generate lots of additional questions that will help them answer that question. And then in order to do that, when they've done that, they can form hypotheses. And then they can start to look at the technology that might help them go about finding out you know, those answers. So it doesn't have to be static desk research in their classroom. That can certainly be some of it on, on the internet. But actually taking this mobile technology out into the environment and doing something useful with it to collect original novel data which they can then draw original conclusions from, and then perhaps even have a call to action, you know, um, with the local community. Um, for example, around, around GIP, um, I've often said that instead of having caterers in, um, the kids could have done a project to, um, to locate all the sources of locally grown healthy vegetables in our proximity and drop those onto a map. And then could they then um, make a pitch to the principal of the school to try and, to try and have those, um, those growers supply our school, our kitchen, um, in order that, and then the school becomes a good community um, um, partner, um, interacting with other local businesses, all done by kids being outside using technology to collect useful data to answer a good question. All right, thanks, Mr. David. I think yeah, that sounds like a wonderful idea as well. So uh, speaking of, of bringing technology into the outside world, oftentimes when we look at uh, education in geography, uh, it emphasizes a lot on like case study ex uh, excursions, uh, field trips, uh, in order to understand the discipline better. So, and then bringing technology in, are there any other ways, you know, technology can provide a more immersive learning experience. So perhaps uh, virtual reality comes into play and you know, does it offer the same amount of depth and uh, realism? Um, if not, what are some of the pros and cons as well? Yeah, so does it offer the same amount of depth? Clearly not. No, it doesn't is the short answer to that. That's easy. Is it, is it therefore useless? Absolutely not is the short answer to that as well. It has a place. Um, and I can think of a couple of situations where that might be the case. Um, you can't take a bunch of kids into an erupting volcano because um, their parents probably wouldn't um, sign the consent forms for us to do that, right? Um, we can't take them up a mountain. Um, and, um, and so what it does, or we can't take them into the aftermath of an earthquake. However, with virtual reality, we can. And one of the ways that I've done this is I, in... in a couple of years ago, I went to Iceland, and Iceland sits on the um, on the Mid Atlantic Rift. So there, you have two tectonic plates pulling apart. Um, the, the North American plate is pulling apart from the Eurasian plate, and lava comes up and fills the gap. Now that's all under the Atlantic Ocean, apart from in a couple of places. Um, and the most significant place where it breaks the surface has formed Iceland, and you can actually swim. In the, um, in, in, the, in the fissure between two tectonic plates in Iceland. So you can, you can go diving, you can go snorkeling. So I, I, so I did this, but I also took lots of GoPro footage and turned that into a virtual reality experience for the kids to see what it is like inside 
a plate boundary, yeah, where 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 the earth is pulling apart. Um, it's it's hard to 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 get kids to do that one because you know potentially it's dangerous, um, but secondly, you know, there's a lot of underprivileged kids that will never have the opportunity to do this, and this is also my um, uh, you know my pitch for technology like virtual reality being a, having a, a, an important place in modern geography classrooms is that you can children can experience um far in you know have a much have a much more authentic experience of a place that they would never normally be able to get to you know perhaps for for distant reasons or for financial reasons and um you know a much more authentic experience than they will get from just looking at a photograph in a textbook and 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 as virtual virtual reality gets um, becomes more advanced, there are just more and more opportunities to to be able to do that. What I'd like to see kids doing though is not just using that virtual reality. I'd like to see them taking cameras out into their own areas, into their own spaces, into their own neighbourhoods, discovering those neighbourhoods, noticing things they've never noticed before, and creating their own virtual reality. Um, experiences for for other people to to have a look at and with you know with the with you know with, with technology as it is now you know you, you you know we are moving to a to a you know even 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 people without much ability or understanding of technology can do things through drag and drop you know and, and so and so it's 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 very easy to do that but i would like to see more and this is another important thing about schools it's very siloed i teach geography um, my colleague teaches biology my other colleague teaches design technology there's not any crossover we talk about it a lot in schools but it rarely rarely happens so this project-based learning where we can we can work across um across different curricula because the world is not really siloed like that the world is not really divided into um geography and biology any more than the human body is really divided into a brain and a heart and and, and uh, you know it's all working together right as a as, as a as a, a holistic unit um and so and so i think using technology to break down those silos also is um, is some something that could be explored needs to be explored in schools yeah, so I, I think I agree with you on that, uh, Mr. David, where, you know, the earth is not siloed like that. And even the title of our talk or our, our event is actually called uh, The Next Epoch, a multidisciplinary approach where, you know, all the great minds actually come together to produce creative things. And I also like the notion where you mentioned kids should actually go out and make or create their own virtual reality experience. So it sort of breaks them away from the user and you yeah, know, instead they're, exactly. they're becoming a creator. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want you know them them to be the engineers, them to be the, the 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 engineers, the creators of the software that might collect the data that we need in the future, you know, rather than just just being passive users of it. Mm -hmm. All right. So, Mr. David, uh, when talking about environmental science, I think there is a lot of talk on sustainability uh, for the environment. So, when we're looking at technology versus nature you know as we go on um, as technology rages on there's there's often a lot of energy being used uh, in order to to develop technology so how do we ensure that 
there is a fine balance of you know technology moving forward, but at the same time, you know it's sustainable and you know good for nature. I think I think vast um, huge steps have been taken um, in this area already. So when I was a business psychologist, I worked exclusively with the renewable energy industry. So all of my clients were in the renewable energy industry, and in the UK at the time. Um, there was, um, and there is, a very big infrastructure build-out of renewable energy. So I'm talking about large-scale onshore wind and offshore wind. In, um, so utility-scale solar um, facilities. All of these things are hugely technology-reliant. So, for example, you might have a wind turbine, which has loads of technology in it, um, talking to a control centre 300 miles away. And, um, and that's collecting huge amounts of data on, on um, the performance of the machine, on, on wind speed and other, um, particular, you know, on other aspects of performance related to that, to that wind turbine and that, that wind farm in general. And we're also seeing smart grids happening, um, starting to be developed. So when one area is not producing enough wind power can solar over here sort of take and um, take up the slack and so there is this there is this technologies allowing these 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 different forms of generation in different geographical locations to to talk to one another and to be able to communicate and and you know this is all um this is all code this is all coding behind this this is all um this is all software that 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 enables this to happen and but also even in our homes as well um we are seeing a move towards smart meters which are giving us much more information about our energy usage um in real time rather than just getting a bill once a month we can see what we're using on a minute by minute basis we can see where um we're perhaps being wasteful and, and, you know, nobody wants to waste their money, right? Nobody wants to throw their money away by, you know, when we can see how much money we're throwing away, um, then, then it becomes easier to change our behavior. Because what we're talking about here is a massive shift in behavior. Yeah. So this, you know, we're talking about technology and education, but what this boils down to is psychology and, and a shift in, in human behavior. And, and, and so at a basic level, we're looking at an antecedent um, which drives a behavior, which drives a consequence. So this might be a reward or a punishment. So if you have a smart meter in your house and you um, realize that you're losing money um, by not doing something, then you can change your behavior, save more. There's a reward there, right? Governments might um, um, implement um attacks for example so that's a punishment as an antecedent driving a particular behavior you know i think in malaysia there's a you know there's there's certainly where i live um i don't know about where you guys where you guys are in your experience but i don't see what i'm using on a minute by minute basis i get a piece of paper in my in my letterbox every every month or, or, or six weeks telling me what i owe um, so there's no um, opportunity to, for behavior change there. Um, also, you know, petrol fuel is extremely cheap here. 
and um, and so you know there isn't a lot of incentive there for people to to change you know their their behaviour on on that scope. Um, but in terms of you know what this what this comes down to with you know ensuring sustainable use of resources in adapt in adaptive technologies. I think this is built in now. You know, it's becoming built in. So, so there is led. There are legislative requirements now for technologists to meet certain criteria. If you're building um, a warehouse full of supercomputers, um, certainly in my own country, you know, you will be required to um, to meet sustainability criteria. You know, there is no reason why all that heat that is being um, generated by those computers should not be being captured and used in some useful way rather than just disappearing up. So, so I think this, this is, and the way to think about this is, is, is to take an integrated approach. Instead of trying to sell a tape, um, a scotch tape, a solution onto the end, it has to be engineered into the solution right from, from planning. But I think this is happening. This is, you know, this is happening more and more ultimately because it makes good business sense not to not to be wasteful so you know i think that um i don't see this as being a massive problem going forward and already you're seeing google centers being 100 percent renewable energy um powered etc of course it will always take energy to manufacture things but the question is is where does that energy come from in the first place how is it generated in the first instance Thank you so much for that, Mr. David. So I guess we're down to our last few questions. Um, you mentioned that uh, you want to be able to drag schools into the 21st century. So how do you picture education in the 21st century? And perhaps uh, on a larger scale, what are your aspirations, visions and goals? Okay, so um, I think that um, education will change. Over, over the next kind of 10, 20, 30 years. I think that will be driven um, primarily um, by a reduction in the power of universities, um, as there are, um, for many subjects, more options available. For example, Google is rolling out micro degrees that are just more practical for their needs. You know, the, the, it goes back to that disconnect that I talked about between universities and, and employers. Um, I think that um, parents are seeing um, schools not providing uh, perhaps the 4.0 education that their parents need for the digital age. In Thailand, where I, did, where I spend a lot of time, um, where, I, where I will be relocating to in the near future, um, there were protests by students before COVID um, who were very unhappy with the government's lack of investment in digital skills complaining that you, you're, you're all, all you want for us is to have the right haircut and the right uniform, but actually that's not going to make a difference. You know, we need to have the right skills. Uh, and, um, and so I think there's a huge shift towards moving it in that direction. Um, I think schools will, will have to change, um, but I think they will resist that change um, for as long as they can. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with investment in education, you know, to be able to, for, for children to be able to, to use computers in a meaningful way so that they're not just, um, you know, consumers. We, they need to be given access to that. And so, you know, an access right now, even in international schools can be, you know, um, sketchy, not always great. Um, as for myself, 
Um, I will be moving to Thailand to open a, a field center. So because I think there is a real lack of um, opportunity in, in outdoors. Geographical field work, biological field work is being eroded by, um, by the exams. For example, in my own subject, they have another exam paper now called alternative to field work, or alternative to coursework. There is no alternative to getting into a river and measuring it. You know, you can't replicate that by doing another exam. And so, um, and so, and there is an element there of the tail wagging the dog. The exam boards are, are, are basically dictating school, how schools respond. And so there's too much power concentrated in the hands of, of exam boards. And, 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 and the Cambridge syllabus, for example, is still using terms that geographers haven't used. So the, so the, so the Fieldwork Centre will be there to, to provide kids, not just, not just um, privileged kids, but all kids with a, uh, an opportunity to do, to do fieldwork. But, you know, they will be using technology there. They will be using um, particular apps. They will be looking at, um, they'll be using microscopes and modern scientific equipment. You know, they'll be, but they'll be actually taking it into a pond, into a river, into a lake or into a forest and actually doing, um, you know, collecting um, real data and, um, and, then you, and then analyzing that data and coming to their own conclusions rather than just looking at a, a figure one of the, um, of the exam book. And um, so, so the idea is, is to give them a real um, experience and, and to enthuse them about, about science, about, about the natural world. Because for all our talk, governments talk about economies and, and, um, and these kinds of things. You can't have successful economies and successful societies without a successful environment. You need a healthy environment to support any of that. So it's about reconnecting children, I think. I think they are, technology is great, but I think the way that technology is being used by most children today is not great. And we need to, and it's taking them out of nature. We need to reconnect them to nature, but in such a way that brings the technology with it in a useful way. And that's what the center will be about, essentially. All right, that's a very great idea, um, Mr. David. And I wish you all the best in this, this new center. Uh, Thank you. Where, yeah. So I guess uh, as a closer, uh, since I think most of our, of our audiences are millennials. So I guess maybe you could offer some last piece of advice or parting messages before we end today's podcast. Advice on... On, on I think absolutely anything uh, at all, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I think what I see is parents value it, valuing a very narrow set of subjects at school, physics, maths. Um, more maths, a bit more maths, then some chemistry and some geography and then a bit more maths. And um, listen, we don't develop um, well-rounded um, functioning human beings by making them constantly do a very narrow set of subjects so they can pass an exam. I think that parents here are obviously concerned about their parent, like any parent wants their, kid, wants their children to do well um, and to be successful. Um, however, um, I think that in order to be successful in life, and I can see this from my previous role as a psychologist, just because you had good grades nowadays doesn't guarantee you the job because there's a set of psychologists there between applicants and the job who are looking in far more detail than just exam grades about whether or not this person is going to get that role or not. And it's things such as personality, situational judgment, um, these kind of attributes that you just don't learn from exams. 
And, um, and so I would, you know, instead of putting your children into extra math classes on the evening or extra, um, you know, um, um, STEM subjects, because tired brains don't learn. And after they've been in school for six hours, another eight, another kind of two hours of doing this is not necessarily, there's a law of diminishing returns there. You know, let them join a football club or a swimming club or take them to art class, you know, or, you know, let them do something else, you know, that, that is, is not connected to school, that is social, that involves them connecting with other children, that involves them talking and having fun and not looking at maths problems um, and textbooks um, in, a, in another classroom environment, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an after-school kind of establishment. That would be my advice, you know, develop the whole child, not just, um, you know, culturally valued subjects. All right, thank you, Mr. David. I think that was some pretty practical advice, uh, which is, I think, yeah, very much, uh, needed uh, in today's um, culture. So I think that brings us to um, the end of today's podcast. So once again, I'd like to thank you so much for your time, Mr. David. And more than that, thank you for your valuable insights.